0: A busy old day on RTE Radio 1 and plenty to catch up with. This is Playback Daily, I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed.
1: So, as a family, we knew in that moment when you were dealing with shock and, you know, only... two days before my son was perfectly healthy Thanks. and I'm having to make these decisions but I knew exactly we all knew what he wanted.
2: The problem is that the things we concentrate on are things which say pay attention to me now if it's a war or a crisis or of course Covid and then these things which these long-term slow steady but very serious problems get pushed away. Mm-hmm.
3: You know you haven't been to games but you are the people that we need Women's football for need. It needs everybody like you
0: and we'll start in the morning, and on today with Claire Byrne, John Cook was in Galway to ask people how they were feeling the cost of living crisis.
4: I mean from groceries bills, electricity, there's just no let up at the minute really. Have you seen
5: your energy bills coming down at all no, yet?
4: No, no, I haven't. The cost of groceries has gone through the roof.
0: I just noticed my bill is enormous even when I'm trying to cut back, it's you know well over the 200
6: euro. Weekly shopping has gone up, you know, the daily milk, yogurts, cereals uh, more expensive.
5: Milk, butter, just normal things, mm-hmm. cereals, you know you, you do you do notice it in your weekly shopping definitely mm-hmm. so and I 'm just wondering does shopping around work anymore because everybody used to be using different supermarkets and
7: moving their no, business more or less around 're all the
5: same now, you know, the cheaper shops used to be there, but they 're more or less the same now like for me, clothes is more expensive.
7: Shopping for clothes. Yeah, shopping
5: yeah. for clothes,
8: food as well. Like everything has uh-huh. gone Even up. Even in the visible. school canteen. Yeah, the school canteen dinners used to be 4.50 Now they're six euro with a drink. And like going are doubled price too, aren't they? Yeah. I don't go out much, but coffee has gone up a good bit, mm-hmm. a lot.
5: They all had higher energy bills. I suppose might be the excuse, or do you understand why these costs are going higher? Mm-hmm.
8: I do, but at the same time somebody's making a lot of money. Definitely
0: energy. Uh, The last bill was a bit of a shock to the system and um, I'm very interested to see what's going to happen with the surplus and if there is going to be any concrete changes in our energy policy will we Because you hear the government has lots of money,
5: you'd like to see them do something about your bills.
0: Of course, and like generationally I'm really sick of seeing so many people emigrate of my generation Um, and is directly affected by the housing crisis.
9: i just finished college now actually, but um I'm Working five, six days a week just to pay my rent and to pay for groceries, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's gone sky high. I No extra money coming in, like, mm-hmm.
8: no. we're getting nothing. No. We're on the pension, no. 2.43 a week. Yes. I have and rent- I have shopping. Yeah, I'm renting, yeah.
9: Are you coping
5: with that? We're
8: well, sure, we have to. We've not. We juggle. Gas and electricity, you know, it's kind so, of. There
5: play. were energy rebates, though, so yeah, the government yeah. did help there. We
8: won the euro. Yeah,
7: but when that's gone,
8: <laughs> then you'll say. <laughs> yeah. uh, the rent is just going up all the time. And they're not helping really. And renting in the city else. here. I'm actually in a B and B because of not being able to pay my rent anymore. You ran into trouble with it, so? Well, you put it by four, up by 400 euro. Like it's just recently you had to move out, or were you evicted? Or we, we yeah we got documentation like us to leave. I'm in a lovely B and B, thank God, because I, I was very scared of, you know, going into like that. Situation—it's actually not bad, and everybody that's in it is lovely. But it's—it's it's a so long. There process. There
5: are other people who are currently homeless. Oh, yeah. If that's—I I know. I think maybe you're, that's the word you were afraid of for no, I know, the last I don't few weeks. Like to say
8: that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard.
5: Can you see yourself getting back into rental accommodation and being able to to have a longer-term home again?
8: Well, I'm on HAP, so and I'm waiting from the the council to hear something. So I just have to. Bite my tongue, grind my teeth.
0: John Cook in Galway there. Then Claire spoke to political editor with the Irish Independent,
4: Philip Ryan. So I was saying there, and your article tells us this, that Minister Simon Coveney is, is looking at measures, including a name and shame policy to make sure that retailers aren't profiteering from customers by keeping prices high as inflation falls. So what exactly might he be looking at and how would it work?
10: Well, what they're looking at is they, they've, number one, I suppose it's it's important to say that they've kind of ruled out price caps and um, the Consumer and Competition Protection Commission um, have said that they, they don't work and they don't believe it's the right time to do that. So the government is looking at other measures. It's looking abroad as well. It's looking at our, our other EU partners to see what they do. And they think that the best um, way of addressing this in the, the more immediate to short to medium term is that <clears throat> to give the, the customer more data on, on what they are buying and how much of a markup essentially is being made by the supermarkets on the food that you're putting in your trolley. So at the moment, we have things around farm prices and, and we know um obviously what it's on the shelf, but we don't really know how much money has been made from there, been made from the farm to the producers, to the, uh, the wholesalers, and then ends up in the supermarkets. So what the government wants to do is to be able to give customers that type of information. So you can see if one supermarket is, let's say, adding a little bit more to the price of chicken or uh, um, adding a little bit more to a certain vegetable um, than than one of their rivals, and then you could make that informed decision to go where you believe the supermarket is uh, making less of a markup or, or less of a margin. Yeah, I
4: suppose the problem is we're all paying higher prices now. Listening to those people that John was talking to in in of Galway, course. you know, everybody at the till is seeing the price of pretty much everything going beyond what they're happy to pay. So, is there a time frame on this?
10: It's very early days on this one. Uh, The enterprise minister, Simon Coveney, is still talking to the CCPC, the consumer watchdog, about uh, how they could go about this, looking at what they do in other jurisdictions. Portugal is a big example where they do give um, the public a lot of information on how much uh, margins and markups are being made on products. And, And that is what is being developed at the moment to see what type of information and how quick that could be put out because the other option is is for the consumer watchdog to do a market-wide analysis but um, and it, it, it's frustrating some in government that that would take quite long time to do and by the time it's done it could be a year gone and and we're not really talking about inflation anymore and maybe things have got back to normal and it would only be a hindsight look back at what has happened in this period.
4: Yeah, we know when the price of milk uh, started to come down and, and butter that the farmers were out you know, expressing concern that they'd be the ones to take it the hit on this and the president of the IFA Tim Cullinan was on Morning Ireland. He wants more clarity around what's happening with the supply chain process. So how do you think farmers would react to these plans from Minister Coveney?
10: Well, I think it could be helpful to farmers and people working in the industry if they could see how much of a margin or a markup that a, a supermarket is making on their products when they, when they provide it to whoever uh, they provide it to, the producers or, or wholesalers or Or whatever the supply chain is for that particular product so they they could look then and they go okay let's deal with the 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 supermarket that's not ripping us off and 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 it would drive a bit more competition within uh that side of the market and also on the retail side where where people are picking and choosing what shops they want to go to
0: philip ryan from today with claire Byrne. And on the live line, Colm was sitting in for Joe and remembering the glory days of Italia 90 and comparing that hype to the upcoming Women's World Cup.
11: Now, 33 years ago, just not long from the World Cup, Ireland was dancing the this tune. 33 years ago and the hype was building. Um, That was released a month from the World Cup. We're not quite a month from the World Cup yet. So is there time to write that kind of a song to send the women's team of the Republic of Ireland off to the World Cup in Australia where they'll be playing on the very first day? Where is the hype around the women's team? Pat Kelly, you're concerned we're not making enough of a fuss.
8: That's right, Colin. Um, just hearing that song, such happy memories. Um, yeah, no, I, but I was looking to get tickets to go and see the friendly matches uh, coming up um, to prepare the team for their uh, World Cup adventure. And um, so they're playing Zambia on the 22nd of June and playing France on the 6th of July. And both of these matches will take place in uh, Italo Stadium, which uh, can take 8,000 people. So already nearly all the tickets are gone and uh, it's very hard to get uh, what's left of the tickets. And uh, so I would have thought that... Our national squad heading out, preparing, going to be playing in their first match against around 80,000 people in uh, Sydney Olympic Stadium on the 20th of July. That they would need some kind of, you know, preview to that, uh, at playing our, our, our national stadiums here. And that's not to be the case. A big so, showcase um, send-off. A big showcase send off. We have two opportunities to say goodbye and to wish them well, and we're going to be denied that opportunity.
11: Right. And have you been Thanks to the see FAI them? I've have you, have you been to see them in Tala before.
8: I haven't. I haven't. I'm not a huge sports fan. I just, it would be, an, uh, you know, when there's a national, uh, when there's an international games, I would be interested. I'm just, you know, I'm not a huge fan. I'm not a connected in any way. I'm just really disappointed that this. I see women's sport as being an upcoming sort of uh, sport sector in its infancy and, you know, a a sector that should be promoted and financed and, you know, opportunities taken to build. And this seems like a huge opportunity denied. And it makes me wonder about the mindset of decision makers that are at the helm.
11: Right. And who would you be bringing along to the match if you could get tickets? Would you be going on your own or bringing family members or going with a group?
8: Oh, I'd love to bring family members. Yeah, I'd love to bring a group. I I just think I would love to. I'd love if there was uh, some media out there, some promotion out there, and that there was. Um, you know, what you just played there with the men—it was so exciting. The whole country was, you know, buzzing. And uh, and 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 there's just nothing for the for the women. It's just, you know, it's a country of two halves, and uh, it's it's it's. It seems at this point that, you know, just looking even at the the, the 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 personnel at the top of the boards, it's all male, and and that's not to say that men aren't there. It's just that there is there seems to be a very old mindset at work here, and very little uh, in the way of fresh thinking or positivity to it. I mean, I, I what I actually think home is, I think of the the women on the squad. And you know, going out there, this huge moment in their lives—the biggest moment, I'm sure, in their lives—to to stand there on the pitch um, on the 20th of July in Sydney, on the Olympic Stadium, which was moved, by the way, from the Sydney Football Stadium because of the huge numbers of tickets being bought.
11: Yeah, that was uh, the they moved from a, the Allianz Stadium in Sydney. I think is a 45,000 capacity. 45, yeah, up yeah. Up to up to, uh, the, up to an 80,000 eight, capacity in Stadium 80, 000, Australia. Exactly.
8: And, yeah, I mean the, the the interest is there. The interest is there, but you have to provide people with the opportunity uh, to to uh, to to follow, you know. And um, so yes, yeah, so, so th- these women going out there and the work they've put in and wow. the uh, and and to not think that their country is behind them. So that's how I feel about. It. I feel well, very, What, do you, uh, what difference know. do
11: you think the stadium itself will make? And just by there, there are um, by by my count three women on the FAI. Uh, at least three women on the, on the right, FAI, yeah. FAI yeah. board there. But you, you, it is male-dominated, all right. Male-dominated,
7: different...
8: and particularly at the, at the decision-making, it would be male-dominated, yeah. So what um, difference do you
11: think the stadium would make?
8: Um, well, OK, so I, I'm not a sports person, but I imagine that when you walk out onto an international stadium, uh, stadium, with, or if you walk into a stadium of 8,000 versus 80,000, I'm sure that is different. I'm sure there is. And I think in preparation to, uh, in preparation for doing that, even the, I'm sure there's an inherent insult that you're not given access to your national stadium to prepare for a World Cup. Well, that's
0: Pat there. Then Kevin called, Colm.
12: Kevin, what do you think? You... have uh, the taxpayers in this country are not getting a fair deal correct but half the taxpayers in this country are not going to their own gender sport. they're not supporting us uh, this lady mentioned that uh, our irish ladies team is going to australia they can't fill eight thousand tala. so they want eight ten thousand people rattling around the viva
11: well, the, we don't know how I many. Can I come
8: in there? Can I come in, you, in there? You, you kind of it's impossible part. to buy tickets. It's impossible to buy tickets for Tala. And there's no promotion. Where is the fanfare? Where is the promotion? People don't know what's on, Kevin. They just don't know what's on. So you, know, you, it, it, you it, can it, it. talk about you're building. You're built. We're build, This is this know, is I, um, a sport in its know, infancy it, it, it. and it's and you need to build. Okay, but you're not going. You're not eighty. You're not eighty thousand people. You know, you're one. No. And, um, it's, it's not, it's not, the, the, uh, like, as you know, I mean, if you ever turn on the radio or the TV, you'll know that sport promotion is everywhere. Everywhere. Promote, promote, but, promote, promote. That's what they'll say. You, you will, yeah. you will, not, you will uh, respect,
12: not, it's revenue-based. But if people don't yeah. attend these fixtures, Because they don't no know Because they're not
8: promoted. They're not promoted, but, Kevin. Uh, well,
12: they weren't promoted. A year ago, I followed the ladies' soccer team. And rugby team.
8: So, can you understand that these are sports in their infancy and they need uh, financial no, investment? I completely understand and, that. Yeah, you understand that. Like, and, and there's nothing uh, you here. There's Andy, nothing here you but opportunity. You ask any lady.
12: You ask, yeah, you ask any lady, who did Ireland beat to qualify to get to the World Cup? The last game.
8: But, sorry, what is your point? So, so who did you're making. I believe. Are you, are, you make, sorry, are you making the point that? There isn't interest there. Is that your point? No, there's no because interest. I'm, there's agreeing not... with you. I'm agreeing with you. I'm agreeing yes, with you. There is no interest. There yeah. is no interest. And I, in you. There and there I agree no with you. And the interest yes, has he's... not. And you know what? Can I say, I, have, I am trying to support my national team and I am being thwarted. I cannot. I cannot get to see my, the team that I want to go to see because I cannot. I can't find out about it. I can't, I can't know about it. I, I thought, I went and to find out where those matches were being played. I went to try and buy tickets. I couldn't. I, I, so you can say to me, there isn't the interest there. It's impossible. The, 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 the forces against female sport are phenomenal, Kevin. They're phenomenal. But I appreciate so, you know, that and I
12: understand I appreciate yes. that and I understand that. But prior to this, when were you at a ladies' soccer game?
8: Sorry? I, I said at the very outset, I'm not even a sports fan. I'm, but, I'm totally, yeah, but I'm just, unf- unfortunately past, there's just so international
12: fan. Unfortunately, there are so many people like you who don't support the ladies. And the majority yeah, so, of cases, but, it's the ladies who don't
8: support the ladies. And there are Sorry. so many like me who support international games. And that's why you put an international game into a national stadium. Isn't that the 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 point, though, Kevin? Isn't that the point, Kevin?
11: You you want people who haven't been, Kevin. You haven't. You you want people who haven't been to games before. You want people maybe who have not the same interest in sport to bring their children along. It's not just the diehard fans you want to attract. You want to be filling stadiums, don't you, and spreading the word about it? Convert the unconverted.
12: If you look at the closed door policy. Sorry.
11: Sorry, just let Kevin finish there.
12: If you look at the ladies Gaelic football, alert, Right, it's what twenty-five euro to go to the game. They don't put €30,000, thirty thousand, forty thousand in the stadium. It's big stadium.
11: All right, but if you look at if half you look, half
12: price, kids free. What more incentive Kevin, does someone want? And it's, Kevin, a, run, can I ask it's you, a national Kevin, game. Can I
8: ask you, Kevin, yeah. Can I ask you a question? If you listen yes. to the sports results, uh, if you listen to the sports results after every news bulletin on the yes. on the radio or whatever? Yeah. Yes. So, um, so um, because I'm aware of this and I'm so i, I, I you know, it, it, this is an every hourly occurrence for me i'm constantly hearing about what's going on in men's locker rooms about decisions making and all of that is promotion 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 and there's the absolute minimum mm. of women's um activities and sport being being being, being uh um you know, being spoken about.
12: I it yeah, those totally, totally agree with you, Pat, because people are
8: interested. But interest doesn't come out of nowhere.
0: Then Colm got a call from Linda Gorman, one of the players in the first Irish women's soccer team.
11: What, what, do, you, what do you make of the role of hype and the build-up and the kind of anthems we heard at the opening of the programme? How much of a role do you think they play in influencing the morale of the people who play on the pitch, people like you?
3: Well, the, the, firstly, the song brings me back and I just want to run out and go crazy the way I did when when we were in the Euros and we were playing. But could I t- just talk to Pat for a moment and say, you know, you haven't been to games, but you are the people that we need. Women's football oh, needs. It needs everybody like you. Kevin, you talked about own gender sports um, and I, I sort of think I know where you're coming from. But where I come from, there's no gender. We want equality as much as we can get it. Um Pat, you talked about like the way you're talking, it's as if, you know, just because the girls get into the World Cup that it's women's football is new, it's not, it's fifty years old. We just haven't course, been promoted. Of course. There are no historical exactly. records. Um With regard to the girls and Tala Stadium, it's a little more complicated in terms of the FAI. I don't know, but I'm just common sense tells me that you have to pre-book your games and you have to pre-book venues. And common sense tells me there's a contractual agreement with the FAI and Tala Stadium. And I have heard that the girls feel at home in Tala, particularly Hmm. because... Particularly because, in the early stages of their um trying to qualify, you might have got two three hundred people coming, and because yeah. we're doing so well, tickets are on demand i mean they 're on demand for everybody.
11: Yeah. Well, L- Linda, we, ever... we got it. We got a statement from the FAI, and they said they did hmm. explore the possibility of hosting the game at the Aviva Stadium, but it was just due to scheduled pitch maintenance that they decided not to host it there and to put it in Tala. They didn't directly comment on whether it was a capacity issue or a contractual issue or not.
3: Well, common sense would tell me you cannot just decide that I'm going to move from one stadium to another. Just doesn't make business sense. Um, yes, we'd love to be in in in, in the Aviva. But for us women who've played football, the this closed season for pitches to recover and to ma- do maintenance is through the summer. And that's when all the work is done on the pitches. We found it very hard in our playing games days for our clubs to get local county council pitches throughout the the, um, the summer, simply because they were being maintained for the Winter Leaks.
0: Linda Gorman on the live line with Colin Mungoin. And on Today with Claire Byrne, Communicating Climate Change. Why are we wired to ignore the impending danger?
4: How to talk to people about climate change is fraught. Scientists, campaigners and politicians have to aim for the right tone. So balancing fact with fear, urgency with a sense of it perhaps being somebody else's problem. Well, George Marshall is a founding director of climate outreach in the UK. He's also author of Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change. And he's in Ireland today to speak to the National Climate Stakeholders Forum and also to advise the Department of the Environment about climate change communication. Good morning, George. Good morning. Lovely to be here. Very nice to have you with us. So tell me why our brains are wired to ignore climate change.
2: Look, it's a really, it's it's a difficult issue for us to come to terms with. We've never, we've never, humanity's never faced anything quite like this before. And we have, it's, it's, it's hard for us to understand. It's, It's in a form which is, let's let's put it this way, if someone was coming at me and attacking me with a knife, I'd immediately, bing, I could click into that. It's something which I can recognise, there's an enemy, there's a problem. And that's how we've evolved to adapt to, to issues which require an immediate response. Something like this, which is abstract, it's caused by people all over the place, it's far away, we haven't faced it before, involves costs and... Let's face it, you know, I, I know I leave putting in my tax return to the very last minute. Like You, you leave things, you push them away into the future. And, um, and we always have other things to worry about. You know, in psychologists, they talk about the limited pool of worry. Of course, to keep, to keep sane, we don't want to worry about everything. The problem is that the things we concentrate on are things which say, pay attention to me now. If it's a war or a crisis or, of course, COVID. And then these things which are these long term, slow, steady, but very serious problems get pushed away. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like, you know, as I, you know, for, for many years, I was a smoker, you know, and and the scientists would be saying, you've got to stop smoking, you've got to stop smoking, it's going to kill you. And I go, you know what, I'll worry about that next week, next week, next year. And, you know, in the end, you get round to it. But-
4: now, you say it's abstract and probably smoking is a good example here where mm. you mightn't have felt the effects for, for quite some time. But when you start feeling the effects, it becomes a more clear and present danger. And we have seen in very recent times increased flooding, increased drought, other weather changes that we see every day of our lives. Are we getting more of a handle now, this year perhaps, on the urgency?
2: The big change which has happened since I since I wrote my book and since I've been working on this Is that when you are? It used to be when you ask people, "Do you think climate change is a problem?" Now they'd say, "No," but it's a huge problem for future generations. They'd kind of push it down the road. Now they're saying, "Yes, it's a problem now." But it's interesting in the recent research done here in Ireland that people are uh, people don't think it's really going to affect them personally. They think it's going to affect Ireland. They think it's going to affect other people. They think it's going to affect people in other countries. So you see, everybody keeps Mm -hmm. keeps pushing it along.
4: Is that particular to us?
2: No, it's universal. Any any country in the world where you ask people who do you think it's going to affect, it's always someone else. Similarly, if you ask people who do you think is causing it, it's always someone else. It's one of those things, it's, it's a problem which has, because it's so abstract, it has built into it this distancing. Mm-hmm. But you are right, the effects are coming in very seriously now and actually just on Saturday, just on the weekend, um uh, Vietnam, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, all posting the highest ever recorded temperatures for this month. Last month, we had the highest ever recorded temperatures for the month across um, Spain, Portugal, mm-hmm. North Africa. I mean, these records are being broken. I think this year we'll see a big shift, also because we're due to come into a new hot cycle. Um, but it, yeah, it's 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 a it's an inherently difficult one, and of course. You've got to have a story. This is what I'm so focused on. You've got to have a story which is a positive story about taking action. It's not about, not about saving polar bears, certainly mm-hmm. it's not about saving the planet, these big abstract things. No, it's about a positive national transformation moving forward which is going to bring benefits to everyone.
4: But the things you have to do in your life in order to make change are not positive often. They're difficult. You have to think about them. It's perhaps going to take you a little more time to get to work for example, something we talk about a lot mm. on this programme. These are not easy changes to make.
2: And it's interesting in the in the research you do that, that I have also conducted in countries all around the world, that if you say to people it's easy, they don't pay any attention. There was a there was a campaign a, a while ago some of your listeners might remember it called The Power of One here in Ireland which was saying, here's some easy things that you can do to, to You know, to play your part. Nobody did them. It was very ineffective. A lot of money was spent on that. The reality is, this is going to be hard. And it's going to be hard, it's going to require changes. The outcome of this will in many ways be beneficial for air quality, for having comfortable, affordable housing, uh, to have a better way of transport, all of these things, and economic opportunities. But it will be difficult. The transformation will be difficult. And so that's why we need a story which really takes people with us. Mm-hmm. We have to say, this is a challenge. This will be difficult. We can do this. We've faced big challenges before. The outcome of this is worthwhile. There's an imperative. There's both a, there's both a, the stick, the imperative, but there's also a positive Thing at the end.
0: George Marshall from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon, over a 100 years since it first opened its doors in Fairview in Dublin, St Joseph's School is now welcoming in female students as a co-ed school. Principal Sean Stack was talking to Ray Darcy.
5: Yeah, we're heading towards the end of another school year. Uh, it's imminent for secondary schools and for one school at least, it'll be the end of an era. Because next September, after 135 years, St. Joseph's in Fairview, known as Joey's, will no longer be a same-sex school. And it's going to be enrolling girls for the first time. The principal is Sean Stack and he's on the line now. Good afternoon, Sean. Good
6: afternoon, Ray. How are you? Uh, Thanks for taking our call. Uh, How long have you you been in Joey's? I'm 12 years in the school. I started off as an English teacher and I I took the role of principal maybe three years ago.
5: Right. it, it's a it's a mid sized school. I always thought Joey's was a big school. How, how many pupils have you got?
6: We currently have two hundred and sixty enrolled. We're a, it's a small footprint yeah, right here. Yeah, it is, yeah,
5: yeah. But 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 been there for an awful long time. A Christian brothers school originally?
6: Correct, yeah, founded in eighteen eighty eight, went over to the Earth Trust in during the late nineties.
5: Yeah, all lay teachers now, I presume.
6: All lay teachers. We've no no brothers left with us anymore, no.
5: Right. So, so how how do you come about? How does it come about that you make a decision to go from single sex to uh, comprehensive?
6: Yeah, I, I so I suppose when we were think when we looked at it, this process would have started two and a half years ago. And and then when I was talking earlier about it, it wasn't really a decision we made. There was, we just we identified that there was a demand in the area and a need amongst the siblings of our current brothers, and based on what we were doing, and more importantly the values and what we thought the school stood for and when we kind of reflected on that we said actually this is something maybe we're missing and and that was the starting point it was only afterwards we saw there's an appetite for this and and that this fits us but it was more it was more when we looked at what we were doing and had a real thought about that we said actually it fits to have all the both genders in.
5: Because uh, there was a lot of discussion about it late last year, wasn't there? And and some politicians were calling uh, for mad stuff like t- to stop any funding, state funding for single-sex schools. That's how far it was going. Do you think the writing's on the wall for single-sex schools?
6: Do th- you know? I think that's a question we've never considered. We, not, we no. really looked at we really looked at ourselves at, on our se- and what and what we were about. To, I mean, I think there's a place for each school to look at well, what do we stand for? What do we yeah. offer? Do is there a place for us to offer this in our communities? And look, maybe the answers would be different for different people. But like I said, when we had the sisters of our brothers going elsewhere and they wanted to stay together, yeah. I would say that's an issue, and and it was something we could address.
5: And, and now this involves. As in from September 2023, it's it's, it's a six-year process, isn't it?
6: It is. Well, we start with the incoming first years. Um, So rather than just opening for all years and and that way, we started with the incoming first years. And then obviously they'll grow up. So next year will be another cohort. So it is a six year changeover. Yeah.
5: I'm just looking at the figures there. So there are 50 uh, first year students coming in in September. Correct. 18 of those are girls. So there's going to be 18 girls in a school population of 260. That's it, There's isn't it? There's
6: going to be 18 girls in a year of 50, is how I'd phrase it. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah.
5: Well, no, just, I,
6: no, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And look, there, there is a change, and we've done. We've done an extensive amount of planning as I'm sure you can imagine since yeah. we announced and made the decision and, and those students and not just the girls, the 50 incoming students will have every support and everything in place for them to achieve both on that sort of academic and growth level and, and I suppose the line we always said is we are not a boys school taken in girls, we are becoming a co-educational school and that starts with the first cohort and will take 16 year, uh, six years.
0: Sean Stack on the Radarcy Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, older people and renting homes. Earlier in the week, Micheline Walsh was telling Claire about facing homelessness in her 70s. And Claire was taking a look at a new report into older renters.
4: A new joint report from Alone and Threshold sheds light on older renters in Ireland. And you might remember that I spoke to Micheline Walsh on Monday on the programme about her impending homelessness. And her story is reflected in the stories of many other people in this report. Sean Moynihan, CEO of Alone, is with me here in the studio. Good morning to you, Sean. And we have Anne-Marie O'Reilly, National Advocacy Manager with Threshold on the line. Thank you both for being with us. Sean, would you take us through the main findings in the report, the headlines, if you like, how many older people are renting and what can they afford?
13: OK, I think the, the big headline, I suppose, is housing is about safety and security for all of us. And in old age, that becomes more more prevalent for people as the natural ageing process happens around health, bereavement, etc. So I suppose most of the recommendations are, you know, I suppose one of the major one in there is, is what is your security of tenure? It also shows... The deficits in the private rented sector, where it's not designed to meet the needs of an ageing population, and so ultimately is—is is, are we going to ring fence the percentage of older of of social housing for older people that matches? The demand and the, de- the change in, in demography, which was actually first recommended, I think, in 1968, mm-hmm. you know, because people understand this. And also what you see is the lived experience for older people, poorer outcomes in private rented, poorer outcomes of health and well-being, poorer you know, poorer in general, you know, financially challenged. And so we need adequate state, state income for people. And ultimately is we have to keep working on the standards of accommodation for people.
4: What came through to me, looking at the findings of the report, is stress and anxiety, you know, and how that affects your quality of life.
13: Absolutely. I think whereas as we understand there has been improvements around security of tenure done by government, et etc. Et but you've got to remember if you're renting long term, Right. If the landlord legitimately wants to sell, you are only a couple of hundred days away from homelessness. For us, we get uh, we're working with around 2000 older people a quarter who have housing problems and one person a day and rising is now facing homelessness. And so with an ageing demographic, which is a great thing, Mm -hmm. people are living longer. These are our friends, our relatives and our neighbours. And the percentage of people who haven't bought hugely on the increase, right? The number of people in their 50s who are renting is four times what it is in their 60s. You know, how long before we're going to need homeless hubs for older people?
4: Yeah, and that, Anne-Marie, if I can bring you in on that point, Mm -hmm. that's going to be a huge problem down the line here because the housing crisis, we're going to reap what we're sowing right now in terms of people not being able to buy, people who are renting into their 40s and their 50s. What is this
7: going to look like in 10 or 20 years time? And that's really what spurs us on, um, ourselves and alone, to, to look at this and to, to raise this issue, to really stress that it's an issue of now that, that we're, we're creating and it's going to get worse into the future and that's very much why they included people from the age of 45 and up in the research because those who are renting at that age are less and less likely to be able to move into a more secure tenure which in Ireland is owner occupation. Uh, So the the researchers did look at the the population projections for the future so at present 17% of renters are over the age of 45. Uh, A much larger cohort are uh, between 30 and 45 and if they're unable to buy in the next couple of years they're going to be the older renters of the future Mm. as well.
4: Now we had Micheline Walsh on the programme on Monday. People who heard Micheline will know that herself and her husband they have to leave their current rented accommodation at the end of the month. They have nowhere to go but I I assume Anne-Marie you have many more people in similar positions who are in their older years and are facing Mm -hmm. homelessness.
7: Unfortunately, yes, we're starting to see it more and more. Over the couple of years, we have noted a, a shift in the age of our client group. And um, so, for ourselves at present, actually, those over the age of forty-five, it mirrors uh, what is stated in the report. We have about fifteen percent of our clients are over forty-five. If we bring in the people from thirty-five up, it's actually close to half. But um, you know, there was an interview uh, um, and the. Carol, one of our clients, is going to speak at the event later. Uh, Carol's in her uh, 70s. Uh, she was issued a notice of termination. She'd been in her home six or seven years. She thought, that's it, I'm going to have to leave. What am I going to do? Who's going to take me? Um, now, fortunately, Treshol was able to intervene, identify the notice was invalid. The, the landlord has not come back with the valid notice. Their intention was to sell. So her, her daily worry is, wants to get their paperwork in order, I'm going to be out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, in our most recent impact report, we had a story of another older lady uh, who received a valid notice of termination. Uh, she actually has to be out by the end of this month and still has not been able to find uh, a new home. So where, um the threshold advisor who's working with her is advocating strongly with the local authority provide something for this woman
0: and marie o'reilly and sean Monaghan from today with claire byrne and on the ryan tupperdy show naomi dunleavy was talking to ryan about the devastating loss of her son aaron and the decision to donate his organs first naomi spoke about this thoughtful bright and kind young man
1: well aaron is is our youngest as you said we have two boys yeah. adam and aaron aaron is our youngest. Um, And I was thinking about coming in here. How do I explain Aaron? And for me, Aaron was joy. That's Mm. how I remember him. Um, Aaron always had a smile on his face. He was always laughing and bubbly and jumping about the place. And one of my earliest memories of him is... um, in the wintertime I used to dress them up in these onesie jammies <laughs> it's, and his one was always blue for some reason but mm. he'd come running into us in the morning and his hair would always be flopping all over the place so he was big and smiley and I, I was talking to your producer Ailish, and I said he reminded me of Fraggle Rock do you know the characters <laughs> the, the hair, yeah, the, so the yeah, characters yeah. would run one way and the fur would run the other that's way right. well that was Aaron his hair yeah, was always bothered nice. so he was just joy he was always happy not, yeah always and you heard him before you saw him oh, yeah. and you couldn't get him to sit still or anything. So then as he got older he quietened down a little bit but um, looking back on so many pictures of him now it's it's this huge big smile he always had on his face. Um,
9: what was he interested in, uh, in school and he, struggled,
1: he Well he struggled in school a little bit, he wasn't academic, mm. um, he found it very difficult reading um, the school had actually sent him for assessment for dyslexia mm. he wasn't diagnosed with it but he definitely was borderline um, and that actually led to a bit of anxiety with him. So the public, Aaron, if you didn't know him very well, you'd think he was very, very confident, but he did struggle with anxiety. And actually, I heard the earlier show, show, and they were talking about anxiety as yeah, well. Yeah,
9: it's, it's a big problem. Uh, yeah. we, uh, in schools around uh, the country, maybe the world, but and we'll talk about that in a moment because this story goes there, there in fact, and and. Um, school, as we keep saying on this program, is is not for everyone. Uh, you know, the, there are people who just love staring not at the whiteboard, but actually at the the other uh, square in the room, which is the window. Yeah. And they dream. But that does not make them any less curious. Oh, and Aaron
1: was so curious. That was the thing about him as a child. Um, like I'd be driving them to football matches and play dates and everything and he'd be sat in the back of the car and Aaron would never stop asking questions mm. but I'd answer a question and then he'd find another question oh, yeah. to ask like but I thought why? yeah but why yeah. but why I thought I was done <laughs> and he would keep going and keep going and keep yeah, going yeah. until I'd say Aaron I don't know yeah. so he was he was curious and I mean even though he wasn't Book smart, Aaron was really, really street smart.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, And he knew how to wheel and deal. Okay. Okay. Because he was very good at reading people. That's the one thing with Aaron. He he may not have been able to to read books very well, but he could definitely read people. And he knew how to. Sometimes he used that to his advantage, especially with his mum. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he could wrap me he around his finger. To, Yeah, yeah. To
9: manipulate and uh, charm yes. and, and get what he needed. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I mean, it's an he, emotional intelligence, actually. He was. yeah, uh, Totally. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, but when you talk about emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. actually, he, he didn't always use that just for his advantage. His friends would talk about how open. Like I, I mentioned about he he lived with anxiety. His friends all knew that. He was very, very open about that. And then his friends were confined in him. And Aaron was always there to listen for his friends. He was really... um he didn't look like the person he was. Like you'd see him, and you'd think, oh, this is a real cool, tough kind of guy."
9: Why? Why would you say that?
1: Oh, because like he had he had tattoos, and he had really he had his hair really really short, and he yeah. had this this walk about himself swagger. Not a swagger, no. more of a, a stride. Kind oh, of okay, thing. okay. Yeah, and he's very less. very tall. He's six foot two, but he was just so gentle. So, what
9: year was he born? 2002 2002 um uh, so he'd be of the uh, kind of millennial much more I think he's just the right side of millennial as opposed to the gen Z which is the he, he's, I think anyway the point I'm making is this uh, that generation were are much more I think emotionally aware um than ours if I may say so certainly mine um yeah. happy to talk they were to talk yeah. among themselves but if they but they needed somebody like Aaron to go to don't? Didn't they? If they, they knew he'd listen and that, and would understand because he was open about it.
1: Yeah, and well, certainly through lockdown. Um,
9: Did you see a lot of it then?
1: Oh gosh, uh, like really? With Aaron, I, I, I realize with Aaron, he feeds. Fed off other people's emotions and that interaction with people like Adam, our our eldest and myself, we're introverts and we're very reflective. And, you know, I could be all day in the silence and that wouldn't bother me. But Aaron, he fed off that emotional connection with people. So especially come the third lockdown, we could see a change in him and he was getting a bit more reserved and quiet. Um, But then he used to go on walks with his friends in the evening. And he'd come in to me and he'd say now it was always late at night and he'd say to me, Oh Mum, I'm going out for a walk with such and such. She's going through a bit of a tough time. And it was it wasn't the same friend. It was always different friends. Gosh. And and I, I specifically remember it because he'd come home and he'd always say to me, I think I made a difference.
0: And Ryan asked Naomi to go back to April twenty twenty.
1: Yeah, it's not something I like. Focusing on because we always try and look on the positive. Yeah. But I am trying to promote his last act of kindness, which was organ donation. So I suppose I have to revisit it. So it was last April. Um, it was the Easter weekend. Uh, the Saturday, he went out for a few drinks with some friends, and um, he would he went out early um, early evening. So he came back home around about eight o'clock and we noticed he was a little bit tipsy, but he, he came and he'd always come in. Hey, he was getting changed and he was heading back out with mm. some friends. So myself and my husband David were in the sitting room. He came in and he was letting us know how he got on and he was heading on out to a nightclub. Um, And I said to him, which I always said to our two boys, stay safe and pace yourself. And that's actually the last thing I said to Aaron. So. He left. um, He went out. He went out to the nightclub and then early the next morning, uh, I was about half two, I think Adam came up to us and said, the guards are after being at the door. Aaron's after being in an accident. It's not serious, but he's been taken into hospital. So we, we were thinking, where? Where is it after happening? It turns out he made the poor choice of walking home from the nightclub, intoxicated. And so at that stage, we we were kind of... We, I'll be honest, we were annoyed with him thinking, oh, how stupid, because we were thinking... I I, straight, I thought, broken leg, that's what we're going yeah. to. Um, and, and we were giving out, saying, how could he be so silly to do this? It's so reckless. Anyway, when we got to the hospital, um, we very quickly uh, realised that it was way more serious than it was. Um, you know, there'd be some people listening and w- would know this. I didn't know this terminology. It w- he was... Um, he had a Glasgow coma three, which it was explained to us. But I don't think we were in shock. We didn't realize what that actually meant. It's kind of a consciousness scale. And I thought, well, it's three, it's not one. So there's, there's some hope. But we've only realised since that three is actually the most basic. So his prognosis was not good at all. So, we, were, I mean, the nurses and the doctors, I have to give a shout out to Lady Allures and Drada, especially to Aaron's Earth Angels, Aoife and Caroline. They were amazing. And the doctors, um, they did everything they could to bring him back and they did give us hope. But. It was a bit confusing because they wouldn't take him to Beaumont, Mm. which is for brain injuries. And I kept thinking, why aren't they bringing him there? They should be bringing him there. And then I thought, it's so serious, maybe he can't travel. But we realised that, uh, sorry, they had told us they were looking for two things, Mm. um, dilation of the pupils and a gag reflex. I'm I'm sorry now if I'm upsetting people. but we understand. Yeah, this this was was the basic thing to prove that there is some level of consciousness there. So we spent hours um, trying to encourage him. Yeah. Come back. So we reached out to his friends, who I have to shout out to—they're amazing—and we asked them if they would send us in positive WhatsApps, massive yeah. voice recordings yeah. for Aaron.
9: So he could hear them because, yeah, obviously he was in a coma. <laughs> yeah, and and you you were hoping that the, the sound of voices in yeah. his ear. People always say that about the hearing the sensation yeah. is, is good so you were thinking this way uh, did yeah. they send messages oh they did and, uh, I mean
1: you were talking earlier about you know the teenagers don't want to hear their mum yeah. and dad <laughs> so that, that was like you yeah. know there's only so much I can say to them
10: yes. they did
1: and they were amazing and and I mean <laughs> there was one Suzanne who he works with and she was cheering him on come on Aaron come really? on I know you can make this true okay. and it was it was in that moment it was kind of funny for us because yeah. we were thinking they're so positive yeah. they love him so much and yeah. they're they're trying to bring him back. So anyway, we, we spent uh, about two days trying to do that, trying to um, bring him back. And But there came a point where actually both David and I realised um, there's a change in shift uh, with the nurses. So we'd been all day with them. We left him for about an hour. And mm-hmm. when we walked back into the room, we didn't say anything to each other. But as soon as we walked into the room, we thought... He's not there. He's
9: not there. You you knew, didn't you? Is it, is, yeah, and it's yeah. it's
1: amazing. Like I, I, I can't explain to you sure. what it was. All, all I can I'm quite a kind of spiritual person and yeah. I just felt like his spirit is, is yeah. gone. We're not I, I don't I don't recognize him anymore. Now you're st- as a parent, you're still trying to fight for him. And actually that night, that was the first night we came home and the guards had taken his phone, they needed to for evidence, and, and I was thinking, okay, I need to get his phone back so I can play music for him, that he recognises it. This was after David and I kind of both realised he's gone, and we came home, and on the one hand I'm thinking, okay, I have to get his phone so I can play the music for him, and then the other hand I'm thinking, I have to pick out his clothes.
9: Yeah.
1: And I I was thinking, how how can I have these two beliefs going on in my mind at the same time? They can't exist at the same time, but... You're you're faced with the reality, but then you've still got hope. So um, anyway, you
9: you have to cling on to that. I yeah. mean, that, that's what would probably keep you sane. Otherwise, the yeah. thought of anything else is just too well, dark. You,
1: yeah, you you never want to give up
9: on no. someone.
0: And Naomi spoke about how a chance conversation with Aaron helped the family's decision about organ donation. As it
1: happens. Um, so Aaron passed in April. His birthday was in March. We were all sat out in the back garden um Uh, We have a veranda so we can sit out um, and we were chatting. and I think maybe because of COVID, we were talking about death and, you know, what we want in our funerals and things. And and two conversations came up. One was about if anything did happen to us, the level of consciousness and physical ability that we would be happy to come back with. Mm. So I know with some parents, you know, you you, you want your, your loved one to come back at no matter what level. But we knew for Aaron that he wanted to to come back and be fully able to do things. And and the prognosis, even if he did manage to make it back, was not good at all. So we knew because Aaron told us that he wouldn't have wanted that. And then we also knew um, because we had talked about organ donation, Mm. um, which I know can be a serious conversation and people would think, well, why are you talking about that? But I think, again, it was because of COVID. I would go for a lot of walks and go through the cemeteries and, I had passed a comment about listen guys, you know, when I pass I want you all wearing colours, I want you doing this and that. So we, we had the conversation, we spoke about both those things. So as a family we knew in that moment when you were dealing with shock and, you know, only two days before my son was perfectly healthy yes. and I'm having to make these decisions but I knew exactly we all knew what he wanted
9: thanks to that very peculiar but but ultimately helpful conversation yeah. that you had in the depths of a pandemic and yeah. uh, the the organ donation uh, decision was then pretty I don't like to say easy for you but certainly was probably facilitated by that conversation you were able to say let's let's do something here that might be Helpful or useful, it was, back it,
1: to... To a point, it was extremely... I mean, David lives what he thinks that we kind of made the decision about the organ donation too soon, that it nearly was like we, we gave up on Aaron. But I think I think when you love somebody and you know them, you know, you know when they're there and you know when they're not. So for us then it became really, really important. We thought time was an issue. Yeah. So we wanted to make it very clear to the hospital, look, we're open to organ donation, we know that's what Aaron wants... But I do want to get a really important message across today, which I don't think has ever been discussed before, because it's you need to live the, the situation. There was a moment, even when we were in the ICU, knowing that we were going to donate iron's organs, where we had a moment of changing our mind.
9: Yes, I bet. <laughs>
1: And that was when we realized when the nurse explained to it, we were getting our, our family had all come in to say their highs and their best wishes to Adam. And then we knew, or Aaron, I'm sorry. Yeah. I knew we'd have to bring them back in again to say goodbye. So we expected the machine to be switched off. And it was in that moment the nurse said, no, the machine won't be switched off. It's because he's donating his organs. And in that moment, we all went, oh, no. Uh, yeah. but we need to be able to say goodbye to him. and. It, it, it did it took we were in shock and it was about a minute or two and then we kept coming back to but that's what Aaron wanted yeah. okay we're not going to be able to say we know he's gone anyway it's got to be it's, about him yeah but and, and, it, and it was a formality we, yeah. we knew at that point we were still it was David, Adam and myself we were in the room with him We knew our Aaron was gone. We knew his spirit was gone. It was just his body that was there.
9: But in the midst of all that emotion and you're in the heart of darkness then, you you don't think straight. No. You know. No, you don't. You don't think straight. There's a lovely quote uh, that you found from a journal entry uh, from Aaron. Mm -hmm. And and he wrote, I'm going to be myself even if a small thing I do makes someone smile. Then I did a good job because everyone has their battles and if even for a few seconds they are happy, it makes a difference. Yeah. And through his death, has come uh, potential for uh, for life and meaningful yeah. existence for others.
1: Yeah,
0: Naomi Dunlevy from the Ryan Tubridy show. And on today with Claire Byrne, underwater cameraman Ken O'Sullivan was talking about his new documentary called North Atlantic.
4: You know, the first thing I noticed uh, the introductory moment from the first uh, of episode is you're still in awe of the sea, aren't you?
14: Oh, for God's sake! Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm blessed to live by the sea in Lahinch. I swim every day, and uh, you know, I, I'm grateful. In fact, every day I get out of the water, I face the sea, and I, I I'm just grateful for the experience. Yeah, it's mm. incredible. And some of these animals that we have in Ireland, in Irish waters, you know, fin whales. Um, 40 species of sharks and we documented some someone's probably for the first time in this series. I mean it's 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 the best job ever it's it's better than having a real job yeah, but you get a
4: you. you get a real a real sense of the power of the sea and the respect that you have for it too
14: Ah, look, as I said, you know, we've all lost people and every day I get out, whether I've been on a ship or swimming or anything or, or on a rib, I mean, I, I give thanks for safe passage because you never know. The day you lose respect for the sea, and, and it's funny, we've been all over the world, you'll feel, you'll hear something, an old saying in every language that says that. The day you lose respect for the sea is is, is a fateful day for you. Yeah. Um. So it's a great privilege.
4: Now, these three episodes, what did you start out to do? What was the aim? Well, so we wanted to,
14: I suppose, a bit of an open book, clear in terms of I wanted to go out into the North Atlantic to search for some of the largest creatures um, that we have there, in particular fin whales, killer whales, uh, various species of sharks, and to try and understand these animals, to try and understand where they go to feed, where they go to breed. And in the case of fin whales, these are the second largest animals ever to have lived. The largest weigh 80 tonnes, which is two articulated lorries are 16 elephants and I've been as close to the one in the water as I am to you now, which was absolutely terrifying. But incredibly, we know nothing really about where they go to breed, which is a large part of the year that they, they, they come into our waters um, to feed for certain times of the year. And so to try and understand, uh, you know, I don't like ecosystem, it's not a great word, but I suppose it, does, it describes to try and understand how the ocean ecosystem works with these animals.
4: And you talk as well. I mean you said how close you got to the to the fin whale, but you talk about respect and and keeping your distance as well. How important is that?
14: Oh, uh, look, you know, it's hard enough to film these animals, but to do it in a way that doesn't interfere with them, which which is my primary aim, makes it, you know, much more difficult. Look, uh I'm trying to document these animals and tell tell their stories. I'm not doing it for my own gratification. You know, I was incredibly fortunate to swim with blue whales in our last series you know, I probably wouldn't do it again because I've I've told their story. And of course we do interfere with them, with boats and swimmers. And, you know, we had incredible basking shark um, presence in Irish waters the last couple of weeks and loads of stuff on social media, which is great. And I don't think anybody would, would deliberately interfere with these animals. But it's certainly so important not to interfere with them because they're getting a brief window to feed in in, in these mm-hmm. waters in springtime, and the animals, their numbers were decimated by hunting. So, um,
4: so, yeah. so tell us then about the practicalities of it. Like, how many of you are out there shooting? You're obviously the under the underwater guy, but what what goes into it all to, to come up with the footage that you need?
14: Well, the biggest thing is is the waiting time. So, as we know, you know these are temperate waters, so it's it's the stormiest seas on the planet, really, the North Atlantic, and and the you know the equivalent in the South Atlantic um, we're forever waiting you're trying to get a. you're trying to match up conditions with the availability of the animals uh, there's usually three or four of us on our rib we, we do most of our filming on our rib uh, rigid inflatable boat and uh, a driver and then an underwater cameraman a drone and an overwater guy and, and, and a sound recordist um, some days too just desperately trying to find these animals and uh, we found it really difficult to find feeding fin whales Why was um, that? Again, we probably don't know enough to, to give a definitive statement on it, but certainly, you know the um, huge overfishing for sprat in Irish waters, which would have been would have been one of their their main dietary prey, has to have an issue with that. I spend. Two and a half summers, 29 days at sea and I encountered fin whales feeding twice and only one of those occasions we were able to get close enough to film them. Yeah, it's quite difficult. And
4: you would have expected to see them far more often, is that what you're saying? Oh,
14: absolutely. We would have done. I mean, I filmed them for 12 or 13 years before this documentary. That doesn't mean that they weren't feeding many, many more days than that, but in terms of us... Being on call more or less all the time, having great contacts with fishermen, with whale watchers, with our friends on the coast. You know, we even put up a plane one day to do to do sightings. We've got guys on the shore with with um, binoculars. So yeah, it's, it's very difficult. It's a huge
4: undertaking, you know. Ah, it
14: isn't. It isn't. You know, and what as I mean, you say,
4: the waiting, yeah. the waiting game is the toughest part of it, isn't
14: it? It is, Claire. Look, as I keep saying, it's better than a real job, and I'd hate to <laughs> misrepresent it, but we had great days. Oh my God, we had great days off the coast of West Cork and Kerry and and Clare. And Norway. And Norway. We went to, so we follow the herring. So so if you're going to try and understand the ecosystem, uh, how the ocean works, then for these large animals, you need to follow what they eat, which is fish. And herring are hugely historically important fish in Ireland. You know, my own family fished for them from Corrux for hundreds of years and, and they were a winter fishery. So it was protein at a time when food was scarce for coastal communities. Sadly, there are two fisheries in Ireland which are now both closed because mm-hmm. of the numbers are small and the fish they were catching were small some small scientific fisheries going on. So we went to Norway because we, f- we figured we'd find big shoals of herring there and to see what predators showed up and you'll have to tune in to see um, what actually happened.
0: Oh, I will. North Atlantic. That's Ken O'Sullivan from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.